So I mentioned just a minute ago that we are turning our eyes and our hearts toward um, Christmas. And so that's what Advent is all about. And so this year for Advent, we want to give ourselves to putting our entire self, or everything we've got, into focusing on our one thing, Jesus Christ. And so many of you are probably familiar with this, right? This is an Advent wreath. And really, this is just a tool that is meant to help us prepare our hearts um, for the coming of Christ, that we celebrate at Christmas. And so we thought that we would get one out to do just that, like just use this, oops, sorry, there, um, as a way to help us get ready for Christmas. And so we want to use it, though, to think long and hard about why we do what we do at Christmas, right? You can see that we have four black candles. One of them's struggling a little bit, but it's going to be all right. There it comes. And we got four black candles surrounding the one white Christ candle in the middle. And those are going to experience, those black ones are going to experience those things that we get pulled into or we experience during the hustle and bustle of Christmas. Um, But they're not at all what God wants for us. You see, far too often we don't find ourselves feeling renewed and refreshed on the other side of Christmas. In fact, this is the very question that we want to consider this Advent season. When Christmas is over, will we feel dead inside because we've allowed, uh, we're weighed down by debt, we're exhausted, we're feeling alone and depressed? Will we feel dead inside because we've let the holiday traditions and expectations just run us into the ground? Or will we feel alive in Christ because we've spent the entire Advent season focused on our one thing, the only thing that truly matters this and every season, which is our relationship with Jesus Christ? Now, listen To be clear, we are not hating on holiday traditions. They can be absolutely good and fun, um, but when we're only going through the motions or we're just trying to keep up appearances, they can actually serve to distract us from what matters most. Let's take this Advent wreath as an example. Did you know that this isn't biblical? There is nowhere in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation that this is ever mentioned, right? Oh, but we do it. Because we're good Christians, right? That's what we do. But I Googled it, and I found like a dozen different stories for what it is, when it started, who started it, what it means. Like nobody has any agreement on it. But there are some people like, if we don't get one of these out and if we don't do it, it's not really Christmas. I mean, hopefully you see that that doesn't really make a ton of sense. Again, it's an okay thing to use, but it's not the main thing. And so um, we're going to spend the next few weeks just talking about some of those things that we do. Um, And we're going to take a look at four of them that make us dead inside. We're going to look at debt first. So kind of like making an Advent wreath, maybe far more important or central than it was ever meant to be. If we don't spend thousands of dollars to fill our living rooms with boxes and boxes of excess stuff, then we just don't feel like it's been a good Christmas. And while it's certainly a joy to be able to give gifts to those people that we love, when it begins to become our main focus, our one thing, then it becomes a stumbling block, miserably empty. Like the video just highlighted, we spend money that we don't have on things that we don't need 
to satisfy traditions that are devoid of any real value or meaning simply because that's what we've always done. That's what's expected of us. And we certainly don't want anyone to think that we're Scrooges, right? Bah, humbug. Christmas becomes all about us. It becomes a gross manifestation of materialism. And before we know it, rather than feeling alive in Christ, we feel dead and lifeless inside. We're relieved when it's all over, but we have this nagging sense of emptiness when the new year begins. And every month when that credit card bill comes due, we're reminded once again what a drag Christmas is on our finances. We've completely lost sight of the one thing that matters most. When we do anything at Christmas, other than focus our our worship and our adoration and our praise on Christ alone in all that we do, then we are completely missing it. We're bowing to idols. And when we do that, we find ourselves stuck in dead, empty traditions rather than in the abundant life that we have in and through Christ. And that's why each of these four candles around the, the white one are black. They represent the things that we don't want Christmas to be about. We want to be all about our one thing, Jesus Christ, the white candle in the middle. So church, let's not let the emptiness of financial debt take away from the light and joy of Christ this season. Paul encouraged the church at Rome to let no debt remain outstanding except the continuing debt to love one another. For whoever loves fulfills God's law. Today is the first day of Advent. We are 28 days away from Christmas. So what can you and your family do this year to strip away all those things that rob you of joy and peace and hope and life so that you can focus on the one thing that matters most of all, Jesus. He came. And in him we have life and life abundant. And so in all of our holiday happenings, let's keep our eyes and our hearts squarely focused on loving and enjoying him and on sharing the gospel with one another in all we do and say. May we each seek this Christmas God's glory alone. Church, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we gladly turn our hearts and our eyes to the wonder of Christ's coming this Advent season. But God, we recognize how easy it is for us to make Christmas all about us. God, forgive us. And please help us to not allow materialism or greed to grip our hearts. May instead we be rich in love and grace and gratitude. And may we make our one thing Jesus and his glory alone. Now as David preaches your truth and your light that we find in your word, we ask that you would use it to convict and sanctify us through and through. We long for more of you, God. We love you and we pray in Jesus' beautiful wonderful and powerful name. Amen. So as you guys can see, we're approaching Advent just a little bit different this year at Four Mile. It's our desire that at the end of the Christmas season that we are alive in Christ, that we don't find ourselves caught up in the trappings of this world. It is our hope that we will celebrate the Christmas that we find in Scripture. In fact, We reject those things sometimes that cause us to stumble, right? And that's our desire is to reject those things that keep us from that one thing, from that main thing. 
And those things oftentimes at Christmas are things like gifts to buy, cards to write, gatherings to host, stockings to stuff, trees to decorate, cookies to bake. And you can go on and on and you can see why at the end you feel absolutely dead, in debt, exhausted, alone, and even depressed. Now when we're done celebrating Christmas this year as a church, we want to be alive in Christ. So for the next four weeks, we're going to take a little break from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus, and we're going to turn our attention to John's version of Christmas. The Apostle John is typically not the gospel message that most churches turn their attention to at Christmas, and that's because there's no manger scene, there's no angels, there's no wise men, there's no shepherds. It's just a singular focus on Jesus. And that's why we chose this gospel this year. Because Christmas isn't about all those things the world tells us it's about. At the end of the day, it's not even about angels, shepherds, wise men, or mangers. Now these can certainly be part of how we celebrate Christmas. So we aren't one of those churches that hates on all things tradition in a, in a Christmas. In fact, you can see we've got wreaths in the windows. You probably walked through the back doors and you saw Christmas trees. You saw a nativity scene out there, right? So we're not hating on all that stuff. We're just trying to look through it all so that we can fix our eyes on that one thing, the truth of what Christmas is really about, that God loved us so much that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but will have eternal life. That is the main thing. That is the plain thing. And that is the one thing that we're going to focus on at Christmas this year. Let's pray. Almighty God, as we set out on this journey to prepare our hearts for Advent, Lord, this time, this season is here for us to prepare our hearts for your son's arrival on this earth, to bring us back into communion with you. And Lord, we pray that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would enable us, you would strengthen us throughout these coming days and weeks to keep our focus squarely on Jesus. It is in his mighty name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's take a look at how the Apostle John describes the Nativity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory, 
as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and full of truth. This is the nativity account according to the Apostle John. Now that's about as clear and concise as you can get. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Now we'll unpack this like we typically do, but just to get us started, what John is referring to when he says the Word is Jesus, the Son of God. So you could essentially read this passage like this. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. Jesus was in the beginning with God. So why does John start here, in the beginning? Because you see, this notion of Jesus isn't something that we created. It isn't something like, hey, we needed a Savior, so let's create this story about a Jesus. No, Jesus was here long before any one of us. We didn't create him. He created us, and we'll see exactly how he did that here over the next couple of minutes. And this is a foundational truth that we all simply must know about our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And that's why John leads with it. But if you look at the end of the way John closes this letter, he writes, these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So everything John writes in his letter from the opening lines that we're studying today to the very end is so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, so that we might have life in his name. And it all starts here in the beginning. Now, which beginning? Well, it's not referring to Christ's birth as that being the beginning. It's also not referring to creation. It's referring to a point in time that's actually not even a point. Rather, it's before the beginning. Notice the verb was is in the past tense. So the word was already here before the beginning. Now, of course, there's no consensus out there as to when it actually all began. You can talk to theologians, you can talk to historians, you can talk to scientists. No one agrees on this. But even if you go with what many scientists tell us, that the earth and the cosmos are billions of years old, regardless of when you start the beginning, whenever you mark it, Jesus was here well before that. Meaning, he has always been here. He is eternal. Do you remember when you first bumped up against this idea of eternity back when you were a kid? Back when you used to think 10 was a big number because that's how many toes you had? And then you went to first grade or maybe second grade and your teacher taught you about 100 and then 1,000 and then 10,000 and it blew your mind. And then you're hanging out on the playground one day with your buddies, and one of your best friends says, hey, my big brother came home the other day, and he's talking about this thing called infinity, a number that you can't even really get to. In math, the best thing you can do is take a limit, approach it. Well, that's what this phrase, in the beginning was the word, is referring to. You can't ever really get there, because in the beginning, whenever that is, Jesus was already there. Next we learn that the Word was with God, meaning 
he has a separate and unique identity. Because if something is with something else, it is distinct from it. It has its own unique identity. And as we've already noted, the word refers to the Son of God, the Savior and Lord of the world. So he is not God the Father, and he is not God the Holy Spirit, because the word was with God. So God the Son is with God the Father and God the Holy Spirit. He is in communion or in fellowship with them. But he also was God. So at the same time that he is with God, he is also God. Meaning the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit together are one God. This is what we call the paradox of a trinity. Now, why are there so many paradoxes in Scripture? Well, if you think about it, we have this eternal creator God, and we are simply a finite man, right? So how do we get our finite little minds around our eternal God and all that he does? Well, these paradoxes help us begin to do that. And a paradox is where we see one thing that appears to be true, we see something else that also appears to be true, but they seem to be in contradiction with each other. But they're not, at least not from God's perspective. So on the one hand, the Son is with God. On the other hand, He is God. So the Word was in the beginning with God, and the Word was God. Both of these are true. So the doctrine of the Trinity is yet another foundational component of our faith and John wrote specifically about this here so that we might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, we may have life in his name. So now let's take a look at what we can learn about why John refers to God the Son as the Word. And this isn't a simple concept, involves considering various angles here, but we're just going to explore a couple of them. First, the word in the original language is logos. It means the sayings of God, logic, and doctrine. So the son, or the word, using John's language, represents all that God says. He personifies God's logic about how God designed things. It's what we call doctrine, or what we call truth. It's why we say each week that we love you enough to tell you the truth, and that truth is found in the person, words, and works of Christ. Christ embodies the sayings of God, his logic, all that encompasses doctrine or truth. Second, when a word is spoken by a man, it conveys the intention of the inner being. So we can think of it in some sense as God revealing his will by his word, Jesus. In other words, the intentions of God manifest themselves in Jesus, his son. Third, we know that at creation, God just spoke things into existence, and that's because his word creates things. For example, God desired light, so his will came about through his word as he declared, let there be light. And there was light. And light has so many fascinating properties. It has different colors of a spectrum. It has energy. It travels at 299,792,458 meters per second. And why? Because God said so. 
He is the author of truth. Whatever he says happens just as he says it is going to happen. And that is because it is truth. It is God's logic, his reason, his intention to create the universe. And his spoken word made it all happen. Which leads us to the next part that John writes about. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So with this statement, John shows us that God is separate from his creation. He isn't in it as pantheistic religions such as Hindu and Buddhism suggest. Rather, he is over all things. He is the one who created them through his logos, his word, through his son. So this idea that's been floating around for years about some big bang theory, well, it seems to have confused the word of God with some random explosion. It's actually hard to imagine, if you think about it, that there wouldn't have been an explosion when God said, let there be light. So yeah, there probably was a big bang. It was no doubt immense, but creation was not a random accident. It didn't happen by chance. God spoke it into existence. Perhaps think of it like this. Let's say we're back in the late 80s, early 90s, long before cell phones were invented. And you happen to be walking through the woods, and all of a sudden you stumble across one of these things. And you pick it up and you start to turn it around. And you see all the amazing things that this cell phone can do for you. It tells you the weather. It can play music. It's got a flashlight on it. How handy is that? A camera. You can just snap pictures anytime you want. You can talk to people, right? It even has streaming TV. You no longer have to stand up there and adjust the antenna whenever your parents tell you to find another channel, right? This is an amazing thing here. Now, how is it then, would you imagine that this thing came into being? Would you think that it was because there was some random explosion that kind of brought all of this stuff together to make this sophisticated little device. That doesn't seem very logical, does it? And if you think about it, right, it is probably from some intelligent designer. That's a far more reasonable conclusion. And then when you think about our universe, how sophisticated it is, how gravity holds it all together, how light is this underlying foundational principle, or animals, their bodies able to heal themselves, to digest food, to reproduce. Think about the human mind, our ability to learn, to grow, to calculate, to invent. Our emotions, we have laughter, sadness, joy, regret, gratitude. How did all of that come into being? Some accidental, random explosion? Seriously? That's the best you got? These are the best and brightest human minds out there coming to this conclusion. There's just far too much complexity and order here for it to be that. No, it can be none other than the result of an intelligent designer. And John says that intelligent designer is the Lord God Almighty, the creator and sustainer of the universe, who created the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the beasts of the field, and he created mankind in his image by simply speaking his word because without his son was not anything made that was made but the word doesn't just create 
he also sustains. Or as John puts it, in him was life. So what was created also endures because it has life. And that life, well, it also flows from the word. All that has vitality, vigor, fullness, all that is active is part of this life that the word sustains. So it wasn't just a burst of power that created life, but it is also an abiding power that sustains life. In other words, the order of the original design is maintained by the original designer through the word. Think of it like this. Even those trees you see up there on that graphic, if not sustained by water and nutrients, will wither and die. And just to look around at this planet, at all the trees that are sustained, not by us, but by God. Even this time of year, we just witnessed all these leaves falling from trees, falling down to the ground, right? And now, why? So that those trees can survive the winter. It's all part of God's design, a design that he created and he sustains. And that's why we shouldn't be grumbling. We've got to rake up the leaves, right? It's all part of God's design. We should praise him for it. And then John turns his attention from all of creation to mankind. As he writes, and the life was the light of men. In other words, John points out here that life is unique with regard to man because he's different from the rest of creation. And that's because man was made in God's image. He has an inner being, a mind, a heart, and a soul. That's what the word light refers to, reason, understanding, especially with regard to moral and spiritual truth. It's what differentiates mankind from the rest of the species that God created. Man has a soul, a conscience, an intellect, the ability to know right from wrong. And that stems from all that went down in the garden. As Genesis records, a man started out in relationship with God, in communion with him, until the fall, when in a single act of rebellion, sin entered the world, separating man from God. You see, God is perfectly holy, and he cannot be in the presence of sin. And that is the darkness that John refers to here. Man's mind has been darkened by sin. Sin is what separates man from God. In other words, man is ignorant of who God truly is because his focus is now on himself. It's a form of depravity that leads to the wickedness that we see in the world, and it's a form of depravity that leads to the misery of hell that we see in eternity. But there's good news. There is a light that shines into the darkness. You see, God didn't leave mankind completely out in the dark. And even though that darkness makes us blind to him, there's a light that the darkness cannot overcome. And it is the word. The son of God, the light of Christ, our focus here at Four Mile this Christmas. Not the things the world tells us that we need to focus on in order to have a Merry Christmas. It's not even about angels, shepherds, wise men, although they're really important because they confirm the Old Testament prophecy. Rather, it's about the Word, the Son of God who was there before the beginning. It's about the Word, the Son of God who is in communion with God the Father 
and God the Holy Spirit, and he is God. It's about the Word, the Son of God, by whom all things were created and all life is sustained. It's about the Word, the Son of God, in whom was life that was the light of men, who were born into darkness, children of wrath, depraved by their sin. And even though that darkness is deep, it's penetrating, it's evil, because it's what separates us from God, the darkness has not overcome the light. There is hope, and that hope is in God's promise that we're gonna study over the next couple of weeks here as we work our way through Advent. There is life, and that is our focus on Christmas this year. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with you, and the Word is you. We thank you that all things were made through your Son, and that in him is life, and in him is the light of mankind, because Jesus is truth. And we thank you that your truth shines in the darkness, and we thank you that the darkness cannot overcome it. Fix our eyes on this truth over the next four weeks. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Amen.